Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or Bible app, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're now in chapter 2. We covered all of chapter 1, but now we're in chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 is today's text. We're now in part 4 of our series, Church Life. Say, Church Life. Uh, more, more enthusiasm, Church Life. Much better. Now, before I even, uh, we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review, as always, from last week's text. It was chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And I give you two points. And the first point of last week's text was the charge. Say, the charge. And that's in verses 18 through 19a of chapter 1. And Timothy was equipped, right? We know this. He was called and now given a solemn charge by Paul to command certain individuals in the church to stop teaching false doctrine. And what Paul does, Paul then reminds Timothy of the prophecies that had been issued concerning his life. And Timothy is to flesh out, say flesh out, those prophecies through his life so that by following them, he might fight the good fight. Say, fight the good fight. Paul then gives Timothy two things, two weapons, that gives Timothy the courage and desire to fight the good fight, to press on, and those two weapons are holding on to faith, say faith, and a good conscience, say good conscience. And we know that we learned last week that the word faith there, faith, uh, it's not talking about saving faith. It's talking about the objective truth of God's Word. It's, it's talking about sound, right, correct doctrine. And what Paul's telling Timothy, he's telling Timothy, when, when you're facing these spiritual battles, you need to fight them from a place of sound, right, correct doctrine. In other words, you need to hold on, say hold on, to the truth of God's Word. We learned that a good conscience is that inward judge that bears witness in a, of our actions, right? Timothy was to lay hold on the things which he knew were right, that he knew that were true, and he was to live his life according to the convictions of the Word of God. The Word of God, amen? In other words, the conscience must square with, must be shaped by the Word of God. And Paul's telling Timothy, hey, and us, right, us, all believers, in order to fight the good fight, in order to safely engage in battle, we need to be holding on to faith, sound doctrine, correct doctrine, right? Truth, and holding on to a good conscience, a conscience that is shaped by the Word of God. And these are the weapons, say weapons, that's been promised for us to fight with. The second point was the casualties. Say that. Remember that? The casualties, verses 19b through verse 20. And, and it says this, Paul writes, some have rejected, some have rejected these. And he says the word these is referring to faith and a good conscience, because they rejected God's word. They rejected true, correct, sound doctrine and a conscience shaped by God's word. They rejected the very weapons provided for them to safely engage in the battle. And as a result, Paul says, they have shipwrecked their faith. You see, these are people who know the truth, right? But because they have not chosen to obey it, they not only have wandered away from the truth, friends, but they have eventually damaged their faith. And then Paul names names. I love that about Paul, right? He names names. There was some bad doctrine. Uh, bad doctrine had found its way into the church. And Paul, what he does, he identified those who were spreading false doctrine. He says among them are Hymenius and Alexander. So Paul then exercises church discipline. He says this, whom I have handed over, speaking of Hymenius and Alexander, to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now remember the phrase, handed over to Satan, means to excommunicate. It means to exclude from the fellowship. It speaks of church discipline. Say church discipline. 
And the purpose behind Paul's discipline is he wanted these two guys, Hymenius and Alexander, to learn not to blaspheme. That the two would recognize their error and repent. You guys got it? The whole reason for the disfellowshipping is, is restoration. That's the reason, amen, so that they will come to the knowledge of their sin and that they would repent and be restored. It's not punitive, it's restorative. If you got it, say got it. So this now brings us to today's text, and the title of the message today is Prayer Life. Everyone say that, Prayer Life. Now Paul, uh, Paul now what he does, Paul now transitions from his challenge to Timothy to correct the false teachers and to correct false doctrine to now focusing on the church's prayer life. I want to tell you, listen now, one of God's great plans for his church is to be a place of prayer. Can I get an amen? The church, the church should be characterized by prayer. Now, now what comes to mind is Jesus' disciples. And, and if you know the story of them, and as they walked with Jesus, as they walked with Jesus, they watched Jesus do some amazing things, right? And also heard Jesus preach some amazing sermons. But when it came for them to ask Jesus to teach them something, it wasn't Jesus teach us to heal or, or how to prophesy or how to cast out demons. It wasn't Jesus teach us to preach, to worship, to witness, or to find our ministry or to perform miracles. No, it was Jesus teach us to pray. And a reference to that is Luke chapter 11, verse 1. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. That's awesome, huh? Love it. Seven points in our, from our text today. If you're ready, say yes. Point number one is this, the mandate. Say that. The mandate. Write that down. And here, Paul, what he does, he gives a mandate, if you will, a directive, instruction to pray. In verse 1a, he says this, verse 1a, he says, I urge or exhort then, then, first of all, I want to stop there, Paul, Paul's driving, what, what Paul's driving at when, he be, when, when beginning his instruction, his, his mandate, his directive on prayer, is he seems to be demonstrating the priority of prayer, say the priority of prayer, in the corporate church life. And he uses the word urge, why? To further emphasize its importance. The, the church should prioritize prayer as should individual Christians. Amen? Now, now the phrase, first of all, say, say first of all, literally means first in rank or, or first of importance. And so we see the early church, right, the church's, early church's priority of prayer in the book of Acts. Most of you guys know this, Acts 2.42, right, where they devoted themselves these new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, doctrine, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, communion, and also to what? Prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Amen? So this is what Paul's doing. He's giving a mandate, a directive, an instruction. First, in importance, right? We must do this. So say the mandate. Number two is the means. Say that. The means. Now, I love this. What Paul does now is he... He describes the wide categories of our communication with God. And these are the various means of prayer that should be offered when we as God's people come together. Amen? Or even when we're praying individually in our private time. Verse 1b, stay with me now. He says, well, let's go back. I urge or exhort then, first of all, 
that request. Verse 1b, say request. Your Bibles might render it as petitions or supplications. The word request is from a root word meaning to lack or to be deprived or to be without something. To be without something. And this is a kind of prayer that arises from a sense of need. Say a sense of need. Okay, it's simply asking God for something. We, we need something, so we ask God for what we, whatever we need. Now, our prayers shouldn't only include requests, but when we do offer our requests, we should ask in bold confidence, right, from God's word. So let's read on. He says requests, slash petitions, slash supplications. Let's read on. And then he says prayers. Say prayers. And that word prayers is a general word referring to all, say all, communication with God. And, and I would even say that it probably includes um, a unique element of worship and reverence to God. It's a good place to say amen. And what comes to mind is the Lord's Prayer. We know the Lord's Prayer begins with our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy what? Hallowed be thy name, right? And so the word hallowed there comes from the Greek word, which is hagiazo, or hagios, which means holy. It also means set apart. It means sanctified. And the idea there in the Lord's Prayer is holiness of character. Got it? So when we're praying to our Father in heaven, we're acknowledging and we're recognizing His holiness. He is to be set apart. His name is to be treated differently, different from any other name on earth. He is separate and distinct from all others. Therefore, we are to reverence him as, say, holy, holy. So our prayers should always begin with worship, always, to our holy God. We must constantly take time to worship God for who he is and honor his characteristics. He's holy, amen, set apart. Let's read on. Then he says intercession, say intercession. The word intercession comes from a root word meaning to fall in with someone or to get involved with them, to get involved with them. And what it does, it refers to the request made on behalf of others. Therefore, it's not only a, a word of support, okay? It's not only a word of support, but also of sympathy, of empathy, compassion, and involvement. You guys got that? Say involvement. So as we pray, as we pray, there should be times when the needs of others, get this now, find a place in our hearts and in our prayers before God's throne. Our praying shouldn't be selfish. It should be others-focused. Right? Others-focused. Let's read on. Then he says, and thanksgiving. Say thanksgiving. When you and I, when you and I, when we draw near to God in prayer, our hearts should be filled with gratitude for all he is, for all that he has done, for all that he's doing now, and all that he will continue to do in our lives. Amen? Now, if you're safe, say amen. Thanksgiving shouldn't be something that we just tack on to our prayer at the end of it, okay? Rather, it should be a major ingredient in every prayer that we pray. I thank you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. I, I thank you for who you are, for what you're doing in my life right now, what you're going to do in my life later on. There's that element, that ingredient of, of thanking God in prayer. Amen? So we've seen four means, four aspects, four facets, kinds of prayer, right? Now notice, not only do we need all kinds of prayer, but also we need to pray for all kinds of people. Look at verse 1c. 
be made for everyone. Right? Everyone. Say everyone. Paul says to pray for all people generally. And this tells us whom we are to pray for with these various means of prayer. And so the idea is that prayers be made for all men, mankind, everyone, including men, women, children, everyone. Say everyone. And this includes all, obviously all people within and outside of the church. Everyone. And this tells us that there's no one on the face of the earth that should not be prayed for. Right? And that there's no person beyond the influence of godly praying. Honestly, you know, we have never met someone, I hope, we have never met someone that we cannot or should not pray for. Now, as Christians, it's pretty easy and, you know, kind of a normal thing to pray for our loved ones, right? We pray for them and pray for our family and our friends and we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and we pray for the three people that we're closest to, right? But it shouldn't stop there. We should pray for our enemies, okay? We should pray for those whom we have conflict with. We should pray for those who are against us, for those who annoy us, right? We need to pray for those who hate us. Each of these fall into the category of all men, everyone, every person, amen? To pray for everyone also, I want to include this, also, to pray for everyone also means to pray evangelistically, evangelistically. We should pray for our friends, our co-workers, right? Our employers, family members, neighbors, for others who need Jesus. Got it? Now, maybe we can't speak to that person about God, but we can always speak to God about that person. Amen? Amen? Now, notice Paul says to pray for all people specifically. First he said generally, right? Now he says specifically, look at verse 2a with me. For kings and all those in what? Authority. Now, we need to keep in mind that when Paul was writing this, okay, when he was writing this, it was 63 A.D. And at that time, the emperor at that time was Nero, the great persecutor. This guy, Nero, murdered his own mom and stepbrother to stay in power. And you see, Nero spearheaded a wave of persecution against Christians, and he hated Christians so much. In fact, friends, he would light his gardens in the evening with Christians covered with pitch burned as human torches. He would put slabs of meat on Christians in the amphitheater and, and, and send lions in after them for entertainment. So this would have been a challenge, a great challenge to the Christians living in Ephesus as Paul's writing this, right? And yet Paul does not call Christians to political revolution, but to prayer. He does not tell these Christians to rebel. He doesn't tell them to protest. He doesn't even tell them to fight for their rights. He calls them and tells them to pray for their authorities. Huh? And I want to tell you, listen, even if we may not respect those in authority, speaking of our national and local elected officials, we must respect their offices. We must respect their position. We don't have to agree with their, their, their political party, their ideologies. We don't have to agree with their policies or even their personality. We must pray for them. 
we are called to pray for them. Why? Because I said so? No, because God said so. His word said so. Amen? And I want to say this. There is no person so high and mighty in a position of governmental authority who does not need God's grace. They need God's grace. Amen? Verse 2b. Stay with me now. Verse 2b. That we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Peaceful there refers to a calm attitude within us. And, and quiet refers to the circumstances around us. Follow me. When we pray as we should, as we should, the result will be peacefulness internally and quietness externally. Which should produce in us lives of godliness and holiness. Got it? If we pray this way that we're taught to pray in the text. Verse 3. Say with me now. This is good. Say this is good. In other words, it's a good thing that we're praying for all those in authority. That's what he's saying. This is good. Okay, this is good. And pleases who? God, our Savior. So when we as believers lift up our leaders, God looks down upon us with pleasure. And this should motivate us to pray often for our leaders. Amen? So God agree with them. We've got to pray for them. Now I want to say this before we move on to the next point. As we are called in the text to specifically pray for all those in authority, we must also remember to pray specifically for our pastors and other spiritual leaders. Can someone please say amen? I need, I need your prayers, okay? okay? Because, as, yeah, as, as pastors, we need your prayers. We need your prayers because why? Because we are the target of many assaults of the enemy, right? Listen, when you neglect praying for your pastors and, and other spiritual leaders, it affects not only us, but the entire church community negatively. So I, I need your prayers. As pastors, we need your prayers. Pray for us. It's not easy. The devil is always trying to attack me, my family, my wife, our marriage, everything around us, okay, because he wants to knock me down, okay? So you need to pray that God give me strength and wisdom and discernment that I would stand firm, right? Amen, in the Lord, Amen. Say the mandate. Say the means. Number three is the mission. Say that. Write that down. I love this one. The mission, verse four. Stay with me now. The mission, verse four, who wants all men, speaking of all people, all people, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, first of all, let me tell you what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that every single human being will be saved. That would be great. That would be awesome. Amen. But that's not reality. Why? Because people have free will. Say free will. And have the ability to reject God's salvation. But it does give us here a clue as to God's heart and God's desire. I want you to write this down. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I love this. Peter writes this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. And this is what he writes, what he says, not wanting anyone, say anyone, to perish, but everyone, say everyone, to come to repentance. God wants people to be saved. That's his heart. That's his desire that every human being would be saved. God loves to save people. He loves it, desires it. That's why we ought to be praying for people. Look at the text again who wants all men, all people to be saved and to come to what? A knowledge of what? 
the truth. Get this. Salvation is clearly associated with coming to the knowledge of the truth. We cannot be saved apart from the understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. Amen? So that's the mission. The mandate, the means, the mission, number four, is the mediator. Say that. Write that down, the mediator. And here, Paul shows us how someone must be saved. Look look at verse 5. For there is one God, say one God. And as Christians, we do not believe in three gods, okay? We don't believe in three gods, but in one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For there is one God, say one God, and one mediator between God and men. Who's that? The man, Christ Jesus. So, in other words, there's no valid way to God that does not come through Jesus Christ. And you know what this statement here in verse 5 the statement of Paul simply echoes what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Right? Okay? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, say no one, comes to the Father except through me, he says. Got it? Look at the end of the, te- end of the text again. One mediator between God and men. Notice this. The man, Christ Jesus. The man, the man, the man, Christ Jesus. Because as mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, a dual nature, right? Undiminished deity and perfect humanity. Got it? Amen. Now, here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? There's only one mediator. Got it? Say one mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's not a priest. It's not a pastor. It's not a minister. It's not even Mary. It's Jesus Christ. Amen? And we come to God through Christ in salvation, and we approach the throne of God through Christ when we pray. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, Christ made, or excuse me, excuse me, Christ stands as our advocate to the Father. He stands as our representative. And so we enjoy access. I love this. We enjoy access to the Father because of Christ. Amen? Look at verse 6 who gave himself, say that. I want to stop there, and I want to say this. Listen, you can give your time without giving yourself. Yeah? You can give your money without giving yourself. You can give your opinion without giving yourself. You can give your life without giving yourself. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus, when he gave his life, he gave all of himself. Amen? Who gave himself as a ransom. Stop there. Jesus gave himself as a payment for our sins. And what he did, friends, he put himself in our place and received the punishment and wrath from God the Father that you and I deserved. This is how Jesus is the only mediator. He gave his life up in exchange for ours. And what he did, he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Amen? He offered his absolute righteousness in exchange for our sin. How amazing is that? Impartation into our lives. Who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Say all men. All people. Okay, you see there's enough in the work of Jesus on the cross for everyone. No one will be turned away because Jesus ran out of love or ran out of forgiveness at the cross for them. No. 
He gave himself as a ransom for all men. Then he says this, the testimony given or witnessed in its proper time. Paul saying that Jesus was the testimony of God revealed to man at the proper time. Amen? Because God is always on time. Amen? And this simply refers to the coming of Jesus to earth and his sacrifice on the cross at the right time. Therefore, prayer that all people may be reached with the gospel is in line with God's provision in his son. Say the mandate. Come on, say the means. Say the mission. Say the mediator. Number five is a messenger. Write that down, the messenger. If you're getting the same end. Verse seven, verse seven. And for this purpose, say purpose, I was appointed a herald, in other words, a preacher, word preacher there, and an apostle, one who sent out. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. I want to stop there. Remember, Paul didn't decide we covered this already, right? Paul didn't decide on being an apostle as a career. He was appointed by God. It was a God thing. Say it was a God thing. And apparently some in, in Ephesus were challenging Paul's authority. And so this is why Paul adds, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I'm called by God. Okay? And then he says, and a teacher of the true faith to the who? Gentiles. The word teacher there, teacher there, points to Paul's function as one who explained God's message so that, that people could understand and apply that message. Paul was a teacher of true faith. Say true faith. Now your Bibles might render that verse as in faith and truth. Truth, say, now follow me now, say truth. Truth, what that does, truth affirms the reliability of the gospel rooted in, in the historically validated life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's truth. Faith, say faith, is meant, is, is, is the means, the means, excuse me, by which a person appropriates the truth. You must personally put your faith in Christ's death. Truth and faith. And this is the message that Paul Preach. It was a message of salvation only through Jesus Christ crucified. If you got it, say got it. Let's look at the end of the text. And a teacher of the true faith to who? The Gentiles. Paul began his ministry with an equal emphasis to both Jew and Gentile. But because, this is now continued rejection by the Jews, Paul said, okay, you don't want to receive God's message for me. Okay, Jews, guess what? Paul began to emphasize his ministry to who? The Gentiles. They want to hear it. They want to hear it. You don't want to hear it? I'll take it to someone else who wants to hear it. So he took his message to the Gentiles. You guys ready for the lesson? Here we go. We are messengers of the gospel. We are. If you're saved, you're a messenger of the gospel. God uses those of us who have experienced his saving grace. If you have, say amen. He uses those of us to experience his saving grace in Christ, listen now, to proclaim and explain the message to others. And I would, I would just say this, every day as you get up, you should say, Lord, I, I pray that you would make a, a God appointment, a God thing for me to minister to somebody. That, Lord, you would create this situation or circumstance so I can, I can pray for someone and explain to them the gospel. Amen? The mandate, the means, the mission, the mediator, the 
the messenger. Number six is the men. Say that. Write that down, the men. And we're going to look at verse 8a, the first part of verse 8. Notice what he does. He makes a change here. He says, I want men everywhere. Now, the Greek word there, men, means males, okay? Men in contrast to women. It's not speaking of everyone now. It's just speaking about men, okay? Got it? Got it, men. Now, not to exclude women, and we know that women can pray as well, right? We know that. Okay, we have some amazing praying women here at Cry Out. Amazing. Man, prayer warriors, amen. But not to exclude women, but men particularly here in the text to model and lead in exercise of prayer. That's what Paul's driving at. Okay, they are to take leadership, Paul's saying, in the prayer life of the church. They are to be the initiators, say initiators, when it comes to prayer. And the same applies to the home. Now, now perhaps this was a specific problem in the church at Ephesus and in their homes where the ladies were where, where, where the ladies were praying, the ladies were praying, but the men were not. So this is why Paul brings this up. Well, here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? Men need to take the initiative in prayer. This is what Paul's driving at. Hey, yeah, women pray great and all, but guess what? It's the man's responsibility. <laughs> in the home, in the church, to initiate prayer. Can someone say amen? As men, we should be ready to pray, equipped to pray, and practice prayer in our personal lives, in the church, and in our homes. Now, question to married men. If you're married, say amen. Okay, listen now, okay? When was the last time, men, married men, was the last time you took the initiative and prayed with your wife? Now, if you're thinking about it, it's been too long. When's the last time you grabbed her hand and said, let's go pray? Okay? Let's go pray. Let's pray right now. Let's just pray. When's the last time you took the initiative to take your wife and pray with her? Why is it quiet? Why is it quiet? And I need to be honest. I need to be honest. I'm afraid that when it comes to prayer, it's usually the women of the church who pray. They're the initiators of prayer. And see, Paul wants the men of the church and men of the home to be about prayer. Prayer. Amen? Prayer. We have Sunday morning prayer team. They gather together from 8.15 to 9 a.m. in the fourth and fifth grade room. I think we just have one man there right now, right? Okay? Most of it's all women. Wednesday evenings, we have a group of men that gather together and pray from 6.30 to 7 p.m. And it's amazing. We just get together, we pray. Saturday the 21st, men, if you're a man, say amen. 21st, men's prayer and breakfast, 9 a.m. We need to pray. Amen? And this is, what, this is what Paul's driving at. Yeah, we pray for everyone, specifically, generally, and then all of a sudden, hey, listen, guys, you need to step it up. Because the women are praying, but you're not. Over your praying, you're not praying consistently. You're not initiating prayer life in home, in the church, in your life. Say the mandate. Say the means. Say the mission. Say the mediator. Say the messenger. Say the men. Number seven is the manner. The manner. Write that down. In other words, this is how we should pray. Now, he continues in the text. This is specifically to men, but it could also apply to us here, okay? Because now he's talking about the manner. This is how we should pray. Verse 8b. 
to lift up holy hands in what? Prayer. Now, it was customary in those times to stand uh, when praying and to spread out one's hands before God and pray. This is the way they prayed. Okay? But here in the text, say text. Okay? Because context is important, right? Here in the text, Paul's primary point is not posture of the body, but posture of the heart. You guys got it? He's talking about the spiritual quality of prayer, not the posture of prayer. Not about, this is not about physical hands. He's talking about, in other words, holy hands, moral hands, good hands, an upright life, as opposed to dirty, sinful, wicked hands. You guys with me? It's maintaining an unpolluted lifestyle. That's what he's driving at. That's the point that Paul is making here. Holy hands, what? A pure heart as you come to prayer. Then he says, let's read on, without anger or disputing. And what Paul's simply saying here is that genuine prayer, when it's taking place in the context of the church, needs to take place in a place where there's not drama. You guys with me? Not drama between people that is unresolved. Because that's inconsistent with what we're doing in prayer. You guys got it? It's creating, when there's drama, okay, and there's disputes and anger amongst each other, it's creating a hindrance to prayer. Because what division does in the body of Christ, division hinders prayer. So he's saying, get it right with somebody. Amen? Before you come to pray. So you guys ready for the lesson? Broken relationships do affect one's prayer life. Right? If you're safe, say amen. We are to work out, say work out, anger and relational problems in private, take care of it in private, so that we can pray without hypocrisy in public. Get it? When we get things right with our brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe you have some unresolved issues with somebody here. I don't know. But I'll tell you right now, what Paul's saying, get it right. Go and just say, just get it right. Okay? So that privately you get it right, and publicly there's power in prayer. Amen? You see, we, we can't pray and work together for God's plan in the church and in the world unless we are walking in holiness and in harmony as God's people. Amen? And that's what he's saying. Just get it right. Because when we get it right, there's power in prayer. Why? Because there's power in unity. And that's what he's driving at. So as we wrap this up, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? I mean, he laid it all out for us right in the text. It's right there. Well, how do I pray? There you go. That's how you pray. All right? Well, I don't feel like praying. Well, you're called to pray. Okay? All right? Okay. All right? Well, it's just not my thing. It is your thing. It should be your thing. Right? You guys with me? So how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? And I hope it's good. I do hope it's good. And I'll tell you why. And get this down. Because prayer life and church life go hand in hand. Amen? Let's all stand.